Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week is part two of our look back at the last half century of contributions made to the growth of community health centers by our show hosts. Veteran journalist Thalia Asuras resumes her conversation with host Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter on the 50th anniversary of the founding of their health center organization. Lori Robertson joins us from factcheck.org and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, veteran journalist Thalia Asuras resumes her conversation with our hosts Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter on Conversations on Healthcare. Hello and welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation with your regular hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, on what is a special edition, special because we are marking the 50th anniversary of Community Health Center Incorporated and also celebrating this show. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this this very program. Your very first guest, uh, I said I wasn't going to get into politics, but your very first <laughs> guest was Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Um, and you have national folks uh, on your broadcast. Margaret, why did you feel this program was important to add to your center? Uh, well, I'll, I'll give Mark uh, credit for the original <clears throat> idea on it, but it immediately made sense to me in part because Selfishly, it allowed us to call up the best, the brightest, most innovative people in the country and have a conversation with them. I mean, you know, I could have just done that by myself, I guess, but much better to have it through a radio show. Uh, But in all seriousness, most importantly, it created a forum to talk about important issues in healthcare writ large, right? We were talking policy, innovation, technology, uh, sometimes politics. Uh, occasionally clinical and certainly during the uh, time of COVID, uh, a big focus on a major clinical issue, but from the policy, public health, politics, economics, communication uh, perspective. And if you go back, um, as I recently did, uh, through all the shows, which our fabulous communications team lines up for us because I would not remember all of them, the range is astonishing. Uh, from from people uh, no longer with us, who I'm so glad we captured, uh, Jack Geiger, uh, Fitzhugh uh, Mullen, uh, Uwe Reinhardt, you know, people who are legends uh, in their time, but kind of preserved for posterity with their thoughts, um, to uh, very recently speaking with a family physician in Ukraine uh, who couldn't disclose her location uh, because of the bombings that were going on and who said, we, you know, we take care of our patients when the sirens, we go off, we run to the shelter, and then we come back and we take care of our patients. So this, this enormous universe of both intellectual and uh, 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 policy-changing work that's going on, uh, it's been such a pleasure to bring that to the forefront of the country. And also some of the people we've interviewed over the years, if you go back 2010, they're back in 2014, 2018, because they continued uh, to increase in their, their influence throughout the United States in a positive way. It's never been a gotcha show. It's always been about bringing people's thoughts, their ideas and, and challenging them, but bringing that to the forefront. And Mark, Mark had brought up the, the point that uh, the pandemic um, has had a special place, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. on the broadcast recently uh, over the last, gosh, it's almost, what, three years. Uh, yeah. What stands out for you there? And Because you've actually, as they say in the news business, committed news. You've, you've yeah. broken news <laughs> on many fronts. Well, uh, let, me, let me just tell a story because it's just the three of us, right? Please. Okay. So I wanted to take us back <laughs> to that, to that uh, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. So we're 
probably a month before we started the show, we said, you know, let, let's get out. And I think, as Margaret said, we wanted to bring the lens of community health centers to the conversation um, and really get a focus in on, on, on the populations that we care for. <laughs> so we thought we were gonna do a local show, frankly. We thought this was gonna be Connecticut-based. And a friend called up and said, the Speaker of the House uh, is coming into the state. And I said, by the way, we're doing a radio show. You think she would be, be willing to call in and, and do the show? And it was a, a good friend, Congressman, back then. And uh, he said, I think I can arrange it. So we had her scheduled for 11 o'clock at a radio station, WESU, a, a Wesleyan University College station. At 10.55, the entire station went out of power for two hours. And you can imagine we've lost, the, we've lost the Speaker of the House. We had this all set up. And the technician <laughs> said, why do you care about the Speaker of, of Connecticut's House? We said, no. <laughs> Finally, the power comes on. We're dispirited. We're sitting there. The phone rings. <laughs> I am so sorry I'm late calling. And this is Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> so, calling from the back of a taxi. And nobody the, told her she, right? No, no one told, told her, her. It, and it worked perfectly. So I think there was sort of good karma, if you will, on that. And, and that's not dissimilar to when we had Dr. Anthony Fauci on in February of 2020, before he was a household name. He came in and spent a half an hour talking with us about this pandemic that was in Wuhan, China. And he really said some things that really put the hair on the back of my head on, on edge. He noted that every day there were 20,000 Chinese who fly into the United States. And we knew once he said that, that, that that was not just that day, it was every day that this had already reached our shores. And the other thing that he noted, and I think was, is, is proven true, he said, you know, the coronavirus, they mutate. They just do. And so we, we, that early on, and we helped translate, I think, for a lot of people who listened to the show, they did as we did after we heard that uh, conversation. We went back and prepared ourselves. Um, and we've had, uh, you know, Ashish John, who's now the new COVID leader, we're in interviewing uh, Deborah Burks, whose new book just got released. Uh, hmm. Uh, so we've had the opportunity uh, because of that, that uh, lucky, uh, uh, the luck of the Irish or whatever, uh, in terms of uh, the speaker coming on, we've really had the ability to reach out, have conversations, but also conversations through the lens of people who live in poverty and organizations like ours all across America who make a difference in, in providing them. We've been able to bring important critical and credible information to them. And Margaret, let me pick up on, on COVID. Uh, both of you have talked about it, but CHC Inc. really uh, put together a lot of solutions when people were in general across the country, healthcare systems, hospitals, physicians were flailing. What do you think you learned and, and brought to the table and will take forward? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think that everything that we learned over the course of the 47 years that led up to it uh, was put into play. Uh, Mark talked about enduring adversity, overcoming it, and moving forward. We, we were not strangers 
uh, to crises. We weren't strangers to being in a position where we really didn't have any experience about the best way forward. We hadn't been part of something like this before, but we'd had the experience of uh, being in the situation of not knowing. And what we did know is that strength comes from pulling together the team. And that team is not necessarily by rank and uh, hierarchy, right? That team is by who can contribute to solving this problem. And so uh, Mark, I think was this Sunday, probably the Sunday before it really broke on the national news, uh, Sunday afternoon that we pulled everybody together uh, and uh, we made the decision that there'd be no layoffs or furloughs, which was already becoming mm. you know, the word on the street. Thank God, because we needed every single mm. person that we had and a couple of hundred more uh, to do what we did. And then we'd have to, we'd have to execute on a couple of levels. One was to make sure we maintained our commitment to our patients. We had to take care of them. Didn't matter if uh, there was now this pandemic, even more so we need to take care of them. But to do that safely, we had to reorganize everything. And we did that clinical chiefs, operational chiefs, um, facilities people just did a spectacular job. We also knew other people like our dentists, our school-based health center, nurse practitioners and therapists and hygienists who the schools were about to be shut down that they couldn't do what they usually did. And honestly, worked worked for us that they were able to become the nucleus of whole new categories of jobs that we'd never had before. People uh, to do COVID testing, mass testing, outdoors so it was safe for everybody, uh, following up on those results, uh, educating our patients constantly, uh, and, and really trying to be uh, the crosswalk between primary care and public health and to take care to the people. And we, we've talked uh, about our special populations. Uh, the homeless are one of our special populations. We have a whole program called Wherever You Are uh, is the name of it. And that was really the philosophy that carried us through the COVID pandemic. Wherever you are, we will bring the testing. We will bring the vaccines uh, into homeless shelters, into tents uh, down by the river, into mass eight lane drive-through clinics uh, on abandoned airfields and in shopping malls. Uh, but it took that initial group of people coming together and, and signing up, many of them to work seven days a week, probably for the better part of that year to make it happen. And while, uh, you know, it was exhausting, it was probably one of the most exhilarating, unifying, uh, purpose-driven uh, episodes in the history of the health center. You know, and I can't I, imagine, Mark, that you had ever thought you'd be, you know, setting up drive-through vaccine yeah. sites, for example. I mean, all of this is new to everyone. Yeah. How did you do it? Well, I think, you know, we have an operating phrase here that we want to make things efficient, effective, and elegant. And we did that in terms of the design of the mass testing sites. And as Margaret said, this was an opportunity for young people who had never been in leadership to end up doing our mass uh, testing sites. We had them 20, fixed them, and dozens and dozens of mobile ones. But that work got the attention of the governor's team here in Connecticut. And they reached out to us and said, we need a mass vaccination site set up. We had never set up a mass vaccination site. Meredith Johnson, one of our uh, leaders here in the health center, was up at uh, Rensselaer Field and looked out and saw that there was an abandoned airport, Pratt & Whitney's abandoned airport. And uh, they said, can you set up here? And we said, we will. And in one week, we set up an entire village that was able to uh, ultimately throughout the state do 8,000 vaccinations per day. 
And it was really a tribute to the partnerships that we had with the National Guard, with the state of Connecticut. But the leaders within the health center that Margaret described earlier, who came from all walks of life, were able to set these up. And that one airfield was the second uh, mass vaccination site set up in uh, the United States. I think Los Angeles had the first one by about 18 hours. Uh, but you know, we, we just had to use all of the resources that we had built up in the health center. But we also had just had to unleash the, the power of these young people who wanted to step into leadership roles and make a difference. And so we were able to do that. We ran them from uh, East Hartford to Stanford to Danbury uh, and to Middletown. And they ran seven days a week. There was no let up. And for the most part, like the Pratt & Whitney Airport, um, it had no power, no running water. We had to bring all of those in. And what other in innovations beyond the COVID facilities you set up, Margaret, would you say have been primary for CHC? Um, you know, I, I will say one of the innovations uh, that is now uh, no longer thought of as an innovation because it's actually <clears throat> become a central part of healthcare in the United States was this idea born out of our experience of caring for low-income, uninsured people, people who didn't speak the language, as much as we could do for them in primary care. They needed specialist care sometime. And just try and get a specialist appointment for an uninsured, low-income, or person who speaks another language or experiences transportation. I always say I could probably throw a softball if I was a better pitcher and hit two or three major academic medical centers uh, in Connecticut, but it didn't mean I could get an appointment with a neurologist or a gastroenterologist or an ologist of any kind. Uh, and we, we took a kernel of an idea created by a wonderful uh, fellow, Dr. Mitch Katz, uh, when he was health director for the city of San Francisco called the e-referral, because he asked the question, does the patient need to go to the specialist or could the primary care provider consult with the specialist in an organized and, and disciplined way and determine the best course of action, including managing the problem in primary care. We took that kernel of an idea and created a national model of e-consults that today uh, is operating around the country. We have an affiliate for it called Confirmed, proven published results in terms of the quality, the safety, the efficacy, and the cost savings of the model. And, and that's just one of literally thousands uh, of examples that we could give you of specific innovations that are making a specific difference in healthcare today. Yeah. I wanna move Mark to something uh, a little bit different uh, because I understand that you see a connection between your initial passion for healthcare service um, when you were a young person and the challenges to the environment today. Where is that connection? What do you yeah. mean? You know, it, it's such a, it's a great question, and that connection is, is so important. You know, Margaret and I have the unique opportunity uh, that we've taken on to interview everybody who's a finalist to work at the health center. It's no small task. There are about 1,500 people who work for us, so every day we have new people who are coming. And uh, in part, we want to see them and hear them. But part of the conversation is, animated by their interest, not only in healthcare being a right and not a privilege, but the planet that they live in. And uh, I think any organization that doesn't have an environmental focus is gonna lose this intellectual capital that exists with our young people who are very worried about the planet. And we are as well, we have uh, set up our own environmental task force. We've built gardens on our rooftop. We have uh, mobile gardens 
uh, in a number of our schools. Uh, we're trying to think through uh, how we can play an important role in it. It may be planting trees in urban environments, but it's really about capturing in healthcare the role the environment plays. In the last seven years, we've had three of the hottest summers in the history of, the, of, of recorded uh, meteorological data. We see these enormous wildfires that are happening out in Arizona and California and in the West. Uh, people are breathing bad air. And guess where many of the environmentally pollutants are housed? They're housed in low-income neighborhoods. So we have a responsibility as an organization to speak truth to power on this and to develop intervention models. I will tell you uh, sort of back to the issue of innovations at the health center. We often say that our real strength is borrowing an idea and returning it with interest. The Mitch Catch is one example, but so often because of our contacts around the globe, we're hearing about great ideas. And through our Weizmann Institute, we're able to translate that into a workable, scalable model that can be returned to community health centers around the country. I think that's our real skill, is to listen to other people carefully, grab that kernel of an idea, which is so insightful and so brilliant, and really translate it into a program. This is gonna be very important for us on the environmental issues, as well as we move forward uh, over the next 50 years. Just very quickly, yes or no, and are these young people passionate about these environmental issues, those you speak with, Mark? Do you see hope ahead? Yes. And finally, to wrap up, uh, and Margaret first, what advances in medical care do you see ahead? I, I know just through this COVID period that my, the way I have to deal with healthcare questions has changed. I've, I've not been on so many Zoom calls in my life and find it kind of strange. <laughs> Is this where we're, uh, we're going in healthcare and what else? Well, I'm forever optimistic, uh, and I do believe we have the national attention at at least the policy level focused on transforming primary care as that, that first rung, the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine issued one of their landmark reports, the first one in 20 years on primary care last fall, and really boils down to saying, we know what great primary care is, asterisk, it's just not what most people in the United States experience today. And it's care that uh, you know moves away from the fee-for-service system is team-based and comprehensive. Uh, it's about a team of people caring for you. Uh, it, it delivers more to the people uh, who need more and more than anything else. We need to get it done and we need to address it in a way that, as we've alluded to earlier, understands that health equity is about life itself, that we have just huge discrepancies in the very length of life uh, between groups of people because of their health conditions, many of which are born out of social determinants of health, adverse childhood uh, events, but can be ameliorated uh, through really excellent primary care, whether that's in the health center or in school-based health centers or any place else. So that's sort of the big structural piece, and you know we will continue to uh, fight for that. But then there's this other piece that we finally recognize as a country, and Francis Collins was on our show a couple of times. The, uh, now retired uh, director of the National Institute of Health, who created the All of Us program, right? Who recognized that we are massively different and that we now have the science and the knowledge of uh, genomics to understand uh, that we need to treat people individually as well as members of a group. We have to study that. The All of Us program, of which we were one of the first participants as an organization, 
uh, is the largest uh, research project underway of our times to really look at how do we look at uh, the impact of genetics on each individual's care, but also the interplay of genetics with family, neighborhood, environment, and personal habits. So a lot of, lot of exciting things ahead for us, I think. And Mark, what do you see ahead? You know, I, I think it builds off of this, uh, the smartphone. Uh, 12 years ago, this wasn't in anyone's hands. Uh, it has transformed the delivery system in so many ways, and it will only get better. We need to figure out ways to give people access to healthcare without necessarily saying, you know what, you work at 7-Eleven and guess what you have to do? You have to get into three buses. Uh, they're gonna take you an hour and a half to get here. You're gonna have to wait in our room for an hour. And you're gonna have 15 minutes with your provider. That is antiquated. We need to get rid of that. And really mobile devices are gonna be so important. The price point has dropped down from, and we've been measuring uh, the use of uh, uh, smartphones over, over the last couple of decades. I think it's gonna transform the way we deliver care. So we have to be on both sides of the aisle, high touch and high tech. High touch because people need to be reached out to. We need to go to the farm workers where they're working, where the schools where uh, young people are being educated. But high tech because we need to drop these barriers that exist that are so uh, anti-poor people in, in that they are forced to uh, lose income uh, because we simply haven't figured out a technology solution. Both are gonna be important for us. We're gonna still need to have that conversation where I can look you in the eye, I can say good morning to you. And the other hand, when it's appropriate, we're gonna be able to use these devices for remote monitoring. Our friends in the West Coast have developed an ultrasound off of the iPhone. Uh, you're gonna be able to do EKGs. You're gonna be able to do so much on monitoring and we have to have our feet in both of those uh, worlds to continue to build a world-class primary care system that's focused in on special populations committed to improving patient outcomes and cultivating healthy communities. So much more to talk about, but I have to say, we've come to the end of our discussion. I want to thank both of you, Mark and Margaret, and thank congratulate you, you on 50 years, you and your team, and also congratulate you on this uh, on this program. Thank you again for letting me sit in your chair and flipping the table on you. <laughs> Thanks also to our audience at home for listening. Thank you, Thalia. Thank you so much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We've received several questions about whether people who are vaccinated are more susceptible to COVID-19 than those who are unvaccinated, particularly against the Omicron variant. One such question came from a reader who wondered whether Walgreens had said vaccinated people were at higher risk. A May Walgreens report did say that in early 2022, unvaccinated people getting tested for COVID-19 at the company's pharmacies had a lower test positivity rate than those who had received at least one COVID-19 vaccine, a reversal from what was observed prior to the Omicron variant. But that doesn't mean that the vaccine is making people more susceptible. On the contrary, the Walgreens report specifically says that unvaccinated people 
were more likely to report having had COVID-19 before. Quote, unvaccinated patients were significantly more likely to test positive than vaccinated patients. In the Walgreens case and in others, raw data can be misleading, a phenomenon that has been exploited by dubious websites that cherry-pick data to argue that the unvaccinated are somehow better off than the vaccinated. A substantial body of evidence shows that's false. Getting vaccinated increases, not lowers, your protection against the coronavirus. It is true that people who have been vaccinated or boosted are more susceptible to being infected with the Omicron variant than they were to past variants. But there's no evidence they're more likely to contract the virus than a similar person who is unvaccinated. Multiple studies indicate the vaccinated or boosted have at least some temporary protection against Omicron infection. For instance, a study of patients in Southern California found that two doses of the Moderna vaccine reduced the risk of Omicron infection by 44% compared with 80% for the Delta variant. The primary purpose of vaccination, however, is to prevent serious illness. And for that, the data are overwhelmingly clear that vaccination is still quite effective. For instance, CDC analyses show that two doses of an mRNA vaccine reduce the risk of hospitalization by 64%, four to six months after the last dose, with protection rising to 84% with a booster. Protection is even higher against critical illness and death. Johns Hopkins University epidemiologist Dr. David Dowdy told us we shouldn't expect vaccination to garner long-lasting protection against infection with the coronavirus. But he said the data are very clear that people who have been vaccinated and boosted are at much lower risk of hospitalization and death. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Asthma is one of the leading causes of trips to the emergency room for children, and there are often a correlation between high-density, low-income neighborhoods and more trips to the hospital for treatment and intervention. When officials at Boston Children's Hospital noticed a spike in asthma outbreaks in certain neighborhood clusters, they decided to do something about it. They launched the Community Asthma Initiative. They realized that if you could treat the environments in the patient's home, that might reduce the need to treat the patient in the emergency room. The home visiting efforts work with children and families that have been identified through their hospitalizations and emergency room visits as an identification of having poorly controlled asthma, and also it's a teachable moment. Dr. Elizabeth Wood heads the program and says the first step is to identify the frequent flyers, those kids who make repeated trips to the emergency room. Then they match with the community health worker who visits their home several times and assesses the home for asthma triggers. And they work on three areas, understanding asthma itself, 
understanding the medications and the need for control medications, and then working on the environmental issues. Families are given everything from HEPA filter vacuum cleaners to air purifiers. They are told not to clean with certain toxic products, and the homes are monitored for the presence of pests or rodents. The result, says Dr. Wood, has been pretty dramatic. What's remarkable is that there was a 56% reduction in patients with any emergency department visits and 80% reduction in patients with any hospitalization. And while this program is expensive, there is a return on investment in reduced hospital costs and healthier children. The program has been so successful, it's being deployed in other hospital communities around the country. The Community Asthma Initiative a simple reshifting of resources aimed at removing the cause of disease outbreaks in the community, leading to healthier patient populations. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.